Great to see everybody here today. Happy New Year! I don't know about you, but I'm excited. Starting 2011 off in a great way. I love that song. Definitely got me uh, fired up, heart in the right place, ready to go here today. Uh, felt like I closed out 2010. Had an uh, incredible time with Tony Kettering. Uh, we showed up at Redondo Harbor at uh, 7 o'clock in the morning. It was 39 degrees out. Jumped in our kayaks and uh, did a little fishing out there. And uh, unlike the last time I went out with Tony where I got tossed up on the rocks, lost my oar, lost one of my wet boots, uh, came through unscathed, we caught a bunch of bonita, it was a great time. Love living down here in coastal L.A. On a more serious note, do want to uh, start out with a prayer. would like to uh, make sure everybody, if you got a pen and paper, if you could write these names down so we can uh, keep them in our prayers. Uh, Sandra Thurber, as you know, or may not know, is in the hospital. Uh, she's about to have her first baby. They induced labor today. The baby wasn't due until February. Uh, at this point, everything's looking great, but needless to say, mom and baby, I think it would be great for all of us to jump in there and uh, make sure that takes place by keeping them in our prayers. Amen? And then Elisa uh, Ludeman, uh, she's in the hospital as well with a kidney infection. I understand she's making progress, but let's uh, please keep her in our prayers as well. Amen? Let's go ahead and now bow our heads and go to the Father. Well, Father God, just so grateful for the... Uh, dawning and the participation, the ability to participate in a new year here, 2011. Uh, I'm so excited in, in light of looking back at last year and so many things that were done that brought you glory. I can't even begin to wait to see how 2011 will close out. On a more serious note, though, God, I pray that uh, we can keep Sandra Thurber in our prayers as well as Elisa uh, Ludeman. God, just in the different situations that are involved there, be with the doctors uh, help them to take incredible care of uh, each of them and the baby. And uh, may we be getting incredible news here in just the next few days. But Father, as we move forward, I pray that as we go into 2011, uh, you will enable us to walk out of here today with our hearts prepared to see a new year, uh, that we can face this new year with excitement, knowing that we can grow and mature and do even greater things as we're transformed into your likeness through Christ in the year 2011. Father, I love you. And I thank you for this time as I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We got any uh, Law & Order fans in the house? There's a few of you. Uh, you know, it's amazing how this thing is growing. <laughs> Theme song. <laughs> Law & Order. As you guys know, it's amazing the transition that's taken place with it through the years. I mean, he started out with Law and Order, and then Law and Order SVU, and Law and Order Criminal Intent, and they've got a L.A. version, and a New York version, and a U.K. version. How many of you knew they had this in the U.K.? Okay, you guys are the true Law and Order fans, right there. The rest of you guys, not so much. But, you know, it's uh, we're, we're going to take a little different spin on that today. This is the latest edition, Law and Order Christian Intent. Amen? Next slide, please. In 2011, there is a war waging for men's souls. Right versus wrong. Good versus evil. Fortunately for Christians, God prepares us with his word to make the right choices. Here are those passages. Next slide. 
Law and order. What are we dealing with? Well, this kind of defines it for you. Boundaries are guidelines that are established to maintain peace. This is a good one. Sanity. And anything that is diametrically opposed to chaos. So when it comes to Christian intent, what, what are Christian intentions? What is Christian intent? Well, I would imagine all of us as disciples, what do we want to do? We want to do the right thing, right? We want to do the right thing for God. And, you know, it's very cliche, but ultimately it needs to be something that's underlying, an underlying factor in our subconscious in that what would Jesus do? Doing the right thing. Next slide. You know, in uh, Romans 7, verse 5, in the King James Version, it says, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. In the message it reads, For as long as we lived that old way of life, doing whatever we felt we could get away with, sin was calling most of the shots as the old law code hemmed us in. And this made us all the more rebellious. In the end, all we had to show for it was miscarriages and stillbirths. You know, the motions of sin, basically what it gets down to is what outside of Christ are our natural inclinations, our passions, our desires, the active old nature that lives within us being stirred up. You know, what we have here is Paul describing our condition without Christ. The phrase, our old nature, or in the flesh, means the mindset of our sinful nature, or, as we saw in the King James Version, the motions of sin as they work in our body. Next slide. The word motion is the word pathema, which means strong inward emotions, passions, impulses, affections. And these sinful passions and impulses were stirred up in our body by the law of God. And you may, you know, on the front side, where do those actions lead? Well, ultimately, what those actions lead to is death. Now, the question that may come up here is, well, how does the law do that? How can the law arouse evil desires? Well, I'm going to answer that for you with an illustration. How many of you have ever seen a sign that says, don't touch, wet paint? Most of us. Now, we'll see how many of you are really honest here. How many of you have actually touched it to see if it was really wet? <laughs> I mean, that, that is just our rebellious nature. You know, here's another one for you. A sign that says, don't walk on the grass. Any of you ever seen that? How many of you ever decided that it was the shortest distance between two points? So because of what you were taught in geometry, you were just going to go ahead and go that way anyway. I mean, that's, that's what Paul's talking about. That's our rebellious nature. It's really interesting. I went to college out of Man San Antonio College in uh, the city of Walnut. And they built this brand new facility. And I would imagine you guys have seen this at different campuses. You know, you guys are concrete walkways. And then there's the places that everybody walk, the dirt paths. Well, they decided rather than landscape this facility, they would just leave it and see after the first semester where the pathways were, and that's where they laid the concrete. So when it comes to the law, the bottom line is we know, or actually without the law, in some instances, I know you, generally speaking we can know what's good or bad, but the law for me just emblazoned so many other things that I didn't realize really were wrong, or how God's perception of them was. The law arouses our rebellious nature. That makes us want to do what we shouldn't do, what's forbidden. 
You know, we saw it in the garden. You know, what, what, what did the woman say? You know, what did Adam say? The woman made me do it. What did the woman say? The snake made me do it. Just that rebellious nature. Parents, we got kids. Any of you ever hear any comments similar to that at all from them? And with that, brings us to the next slide. The forbidden becomes the things to do list. Now, we take a look at this slide. We have the flagship hotel in Houston. You may or not may not be able to see it all the way in the back, but it's built on the water. Now, on the right, we've got this incredible dining room that's on the back side of the hotel that's on the bottom level. Now, they have a sign posted on all the balconies, do not fish. So, guess what do you think happens? People on the various floors all the way up to the top break out the fishing poles, cast their lines on out. Now, to, to get out beyond the building and the pier, you need a pretty heavy weight for those of you that fish, one ounce, one and a half ounce, something large, right? Well, what they don't take into consideration, they obviously weren't very good in geometry or they don't know the capacity of the reels on their fishing poles because when they would cast out, it wouldn't make it all the way out. It would swing back in and that dining room had all kinds of broken windows. Now, do you know how the hotel fixed the problem? They removed the signs. No longer an issue. And again, that's how we function. That's how we operate. The windows were finally safe at last. Now, when it comes to being a Christian, what are, what are Christian intents? What do we generally want to do? Anybody? What is righteous? What does that mean? What's right with God? I mean, that pretty much encompasses it. We know what's wrong. We want to do the right thing, but it doesn't quite always work out that way. Now, what does the world say about good intentions? It's a euphemism most of us know. Good intentions pave the way to what? To hell. And this is the quandary that we have in the flesh. These are the challenges we have in the flesh. Good intentions pave the way to hell. Beginning of a new year, 2011, what are we going to do differently? You know, I would imagine all of this, based on what we've gone through last year, have different things that we can look to in our, in our flesh that we've transformed in, that we've grown in, that we've matured in, things that maybe plagued us for a while because we decided to make it a focus, there was growth. Well, how about taking that to the next level this year? Let's go back and acknowledge the victories we've had, and then let's take another look at the shortcomings we've had and realize, you know what? We can take this to the next level in 2011. We can be that much more pleasing to God. We can have that much more impact in our community groups, in our family groups. Amen? You know, for me, sometimes I need to kind of slow down a little bit and think about implications. And um, most of you guys haven't had the opportunity to go camping with me. Sometimes I cut loose a little bit when I'm out with the brothers. It's not always the, the best situation in the world. I remember I was out with Steve Burns and Gio Garces. We were uh, up at Lake Kachuma fishing and... Gio was kind of huddling in the tank because it was raining and he didn't want to get his hair wet. And, um, I, you know, and this, this isn't gossip at this point. I've shared this in front of him, so we're, we're good with that. But I, I don't know what it was. We're sitting around the fireplace and there was this big fifth wheeler sitting across the way from us. And I just got this wild hair. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've seen the trucks that pull those things. And they must be pretty heavy. So I walked up to the front of it and I thought it would just shake. Well, I pressed on it and it ended up lifting up. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I ran back and I sat down next to the fire. Next thing I know, the woman and the guy that were inside, I didn't even think there was anybody in it at the time. And needless to say, they poked their heads out the door, and I couldn't think of anything other to say than, hey, how you doing? You know, we're in California, earthquakes, all that good stuff, right? 
Then there was another time, and you know, this is definitely my sinful nature. I've been in several bad accidents. My wife will attest to the fact that I was probably the cause of most of them. But uh, I had gotten rear-ended years ago, and uh, whenever I see somebody coming up close on me, you know, maybe some of you can relate if that's happened to you, you kind of tense up a little bit, and I'm paying more attention to what's going on in the rearview mirror than what's in front of me. Well, we were coming back from the camp trip, and this guy, at the time I had an H2, and he would pull up behind me. I mean, he was on my tail so close, I couldn't even see him in the rearview mirror. You know, I'd get a little bit of distance ahead of him, he'd pull right back up on me, and I'm starting to stress, and this, again, was sinful. I, I got out of the Hummer, I walked around on the back of the vehicle, I'm like, dude, what is your problem, man? Get off my hindsight! I get back in the car, and Steve Burns and Gio start cracking up, it's like, dude, you got a problem with old people, man, that was rage, you need to repent. I don't think it was that funny. Anyway, now, I do things right sometimes. Um, a number of years back, I was managing uh, Toyota of Simi Valley, uh, particularly their pre-owned department, and um, was having a great year. We were in, into the fifth month of the year. Our used car profits were up a quarter of a million dollars. The month of June hit. Many of you remember this. It's when gas started jetting up to five bucks a gallon. So I had a month where everybody dumped their SUVs on me. I had them in our inventory the following month. I took a $25,000 hit at the auction. I was fired. It's the first time I've ever been fired from a job. And uh, needless to say, the individual involved brought in his own crew. Two months later, he was fired, so I felt some degree of retribution there. <laughs> Let the Lord avenge, right? The, the thing that was awesome about it, though, is because of the way I conducted myself, I had a manager that I worked with, and he was so blown away, he knew that it was wrong. There was absolutely no reason for me to let go, but because I didn't cuss up a storm or cuss him out or storm out of there, but packed up my stuff, said goodbye to everybody, gave out my phone number to those that wanted it. He followed up with me, called, ended up becoming a Christian. He was one of my co-managers, and then one of, one of my salesmen became a Christian out of that situation as well. So we can kind of see the good versus evil thing going on here. I don't know that those first two instances probably would have helped me bring either one of those guys to Christ. But when we do things the right way, it's amazing the impact that we can have for the Lord. Amen? Uh, Romans 7, verse 14. I can't even usually get through this passage in one piece. It's so... You, you'll understand what I'm saying in a minute here. It says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Can't believe it. I got through that one piece. Well, just kind of continuing with this theme in Romans 7 verse 14, as we saw, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. What does the law do? It gives us contrast. Right, wrong, good, evil. It's a constant battle. Anyone who claims to be sinless is nuts. There's absolutely no way. And even though we're saved, we still have the old sinful nature in us that wants us to rebel against God. You know, we're basically a walking civil war every day of our lives. We're Dr. Jekyll, sometimes we're Mr. Hyde, you know, like Luke in Star Wars. Luke, come to the dark side. I mean, this is this, this thing that we've got playing out every day. I remember when I was a kid, I used to play on the, you know, we used to play King of the Hill or King of the Jungle Gym. And, uh, you know, it was fun. What the object was, was to throw off whoever the guy was on the top. And, you know, what goes on in our heart is very similar to that King of the Hill in that the Holy Spirit and our old sinful self are constantly at war within competing for King of the Hill, the throne of our heart. You know, Paul says, I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. You know, people in his day, they were captured in war, and they were sold as slaves. And with us, when flesh gains control, we become its slave. Romans 6.16, if you'll turn there with me. Give me an amen when you get there. Romans 6.16. says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. See, though, even though we're saved, we're still capable of being bound by the sinful flesh. You know, just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we get a free pass that there will never be adultery in our lives. There will never be addicted to pornography, have issues with tobacco or alcohol, drugs, gambling, stealing, lying, any of those things. You know, we know in our own character, and we can definitely see it in the non-Christians around us. So what's the means of overcoming this? Well, I've got a little story I want to read here. It's a very brief one. Actually, a quote. It's the uh, last words of General John Sedwick that he uttered while peering at the enemy lines during the Civil War battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse in 1864. He says, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dist. <laughs> I don't know about you, ma'am, but if somebody's going to be quoting me, I don't know if that's the quotable quote I want out there floating around. See, the issue here, though, is Sedgwick underestimated the enemy. And as disciples, can't we do the same thing? We understand, we underestimate the power of sin in our lives. We underestimate the power of Satan in our lives. Paul talked about it again in Romans 7, 14. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. I mean, we went through all this. I mean, Paul, the apostle, had this quandary that he was dealing with every day of his life. I would imagine his disciples, can we relate to Paul here? You know, what does he express in this passage? 
frustration. We all have that with our flesh. Verse 15 states, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. How many times have we done something and said, man, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't hurt that person. Because Paul loves the Lord, when we see him wrestling with this, he's concerned about what he neglects to do. And, you know, we should have that same concern. Our failure to do what is right, to serve Christ, to let our light shine for Him, that should bother us. Paul continues to express that frustration. What I hate, I do. You know, we, I would imagine all of us hate our selfishness, our pride, our jealousy, anger, losing our temper, greed, etc. Yet, we still do these things. In verse 16 he says, we find that our disobedience reveals the function of God's law. What does it do ultimately? When you put the law up against you, does it not contrast the worst that sin brings out in us, the wickedness? It shows we're sinners. Ultimately what it shows, and this is the most important thing to come away today with, is we need a Savior. That's why I became a Christian 20 years ago. I had no power over my anger. I had no power over my mouth. I had no power over my abusiveness with my wife and my children. I need a Savior. Romans verse 17 says, It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. In this verse, Paul says that sin dwells in us. And he's not passing the buck. He's identifying the source of our problem. Sin dwells in us, even though we're saved. There are two wills in constant conflict. The old man, the new man. Light and darkness. And if you try to live the Christian life in your own power and strength, guess what? You will fail. You cannot live a victorious Christian life independent of God's help. There must be dependence and surrender to His control. You know, the, uh, what was it, that song? Have your own way, or, uh, yeah, it was have your own way, Lord, right? I would imagine more often than not when we were to think through that, I mean, I, I just kind of slipped up on an ounce. Have your own way. That's how we want it. That's America. You know, good old Burger King, the Burger King way, the way you want it, when you want it. And that, that's not true Christianity. You know, becoming a Christian does not remove our conflict with sin. In a lot of ways, it intensifies it, makes the battle fiercer. You know, you can be born again in a moment, right? What does it take? You know, believe Jesus Christ, Son of God? What's your good confession? Jesus Lord. Boom! Done, Right? doesn't take a whole lot to accomplish that. Now, obviously, we study the Bible. We have a understanding of what Jesus has done for us. But we need to remember, becoming like Christ takes a lifetime. The Christian life is a fight or a race. I know some of you have been studying the Bible with us. And your concern is that, well, I don't know that I can do this. I don't, I mean, Jesus was perfect. Well, yeah, he is. And you need to rejoice in that because if he wasn't, guess what? We wouldn't be here. He wouldn't have overcome sin. There wouldn't have been a sacrifice that was worthy of us being able to walk into God's presence because of Jesus Christ's blood purifying us from our sins. But it does mean you have to have a conviction about what Jesus has done for us and the fact that we need to remain surrendered to Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen? 1 Corinthians 9, go ahead and turn there with me. Verse 24. says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize 
Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Do you train? What form does it come in? Is it with the degree of conviction that Paul has? I beat my body and make it my slave. You know, what does Paul mean? Well, he takes responsible for the spiritual condition he's in. You know, there are a lot of athletes in the group. You know what the training, what goes into it. A lot of, maybe not so much, athletes in the group that are a little bit older, but you know what it takes to kind of dial in the waistline. It's hard work. My, my wife convinced me to do this Bikram yoga thing with her. I'm telling you, that is the most psychotic thing on the face of the planet. I mean, you, you guys know me. I'm up here, it's probably 60 degrees in here, and I'm perspiring already. Imagine me doing something that takes some kind of athletic endurance in a room that's 104 degrees. That's psychotic. I did make it through the class. Did it once, probably never do it again. But that's beating your body. You know, I appreciate my wife and the way she goes after keeping herself in shape. But, you know, we need to have that same degree of concern for our spiritual well-being. I would imagine there aren't too many of us to be raising our hands on the fact that, yeah, this is the way we pursue our Christian walk. You know, when it comes to the time we spend in the Bible, when it comes to our time in prayer, when it comes to sitting down at the dinner time with family, and as it talks about in Deuteronomy 6, talking about the Word, talking about God, talking about His influence in our life, talking about the way He helped us change, and then modeling it for our kids as well. How many of us can actually say that? It's rhetorical. I don't want to see hands. But, you know, this is what Paul talked about the need, what we would need in order to not just endure, not just make it, but, man, have an impact. Do you train? Not happy with where you're at? It's no one's fault but your own. Take responsibility, then take control. See, our goodness in Christ, our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's eyes. Paul continues in Romans verse 18 He says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out on my own. Two key things are uh, inadequate in changing a person and conquering sin. First one, next slide. First First of all, human knowledge alone does not make a man good. Education is not the answer to society's dilemma. In fact, education in a lot of ways is being used to make men more sinful which will create more social problems. I mean, we got preteens today being taught about immorality and homosexuality. We got kids, young kids with cell phones sexting each other. We got kids that are buying into predators on the social networks that are way beyond their ages trying to appeal to 13, 14, 15-year-olds to enter into relationships with them. There are children that have been kidnapped who have responded to those kinds of things. Is education the answer? I don't think so. Next PowerPoint. See, with Christ, we're able to know what we need to do. Secondly here, though, human willpower or resolve is inadequate for change in conquering sin. Resolve is far from doing. There is no power in man's willpower outside of Christ's power. Our sinful nature is still with us. I mean, everybody remembers Peter, right? 
How, how, how well did his willpower do? How well did his resolve do? You know, when he was confronted with knowing Jesus, what happened? He denied him. So he wasn't walking with Christ at that point. He was walking on his own, and we see it in his response. Matthew 26, verse 35, says, But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. Will power help them? Not at all. See, there needs to be a yielding, a surrendering to the Lord. Or we will destroy our testimony, our marriage, opportunities of blessing and service, or scar our lives by the stupid decisions we make because we're not relying on God. And those stupid decisions can lead to prison, to pregnancy, addictions, or harming someone else. Next PowerPoint. You guys might want to write this one down. This had quite an impact on me. Sow a sin, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. What are you sowing? See, one of the things that's real evident about Paul is his love for God. He's frustrated with his flesh because he's dedicated to the Lord. He's concerned about his sinful nature. And we need to be that same way. As a disciple, as a spiritual believer, we need to be sensitive to the sin because of its consequences and its destructiveness. Sin devastates our lives. I want us to take a look how I'm going to run through these quickly. Uh, please just... Write them down if it's something that you want to uh, take a look at earlier, later. First one, sin pains the Holy Spirit. It grieves Him. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Second one, sin pierces the Lord's heart. It dishonors Him. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Number three, this one really convicts me. Prayers are hindered by sin. 1 Peter 3, verse 12. Fourth one, spiritual power is robbed by our own sinfulness. We weaken our influence for Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.27 The next one, sin pilfers the joy of our salvation. Psalm 51 verse 12 Next one, sin prohibits good things from God. Jeremiah 5.25 Seventh one, sin postpones our spiritual growth. 1 Corinthians 3.1 Next one, sin petitions the discipline of the Lord. It invites God's discipline in our lives. You know, that's one I've invited in a few too many times. Hebrews 12, 6 and 7. Number nine, sin prevents us from being a fit vessel for the Lord to use. 2 Timothy 2, verse 21. The next one, sin pollutes the Christian fellowship. 1 Corinthians 10, 21. And then the final one, sin physically endangers our life and health. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, 1 John 5, verse 16. Sin is destructive. Now let's reflect for a moment on the things that we swore up and down we would never do. Things that we would never go back to. And maybe in some instances we're currently in the midst of those things. Paul understood this. Romans 7, verse 22 says, for my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. You know, do we delight in God's law? We need to. So I know there have been times where I haven't in the areas that I've needed to, and it's amazing how 
all of a sudden, vows that I swore that I honor have been violated. You know, maybe there's an addiction problem in your past, and you're using again. You know, maybe you swore you'd never be immoral, never get an abortion, never abuse a child, and on and on and on. The means of overcoming that is delighting in God's law. You know, you may have heard this before. You have two dogs. It's a wicked dog and a righteous dog. Same shape and build. Which one's going to win? The one you feed. That's the long and the short of it. What happens when you don't eat? You get hungry. I get cranky. My wife will attest to that. We become susceptible to disease. It's the same thing spiritually. If we're not feeding ourselves spiritually, the righteous dog doesn't have a chance. And I think more than anything, if I can appeal to you this year as we head into 2011, have you been remiss in reading your Bible? Have you been remiss in prayer? Have you been remiss in being a part of the fellowship where we can help each other? Allow that to be your intent in 2011, that those are the things that you're going to pursue. See, we need to delight in God's law. Job understood this. In Job 23, verse 12, he says, I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. That's some conviction. You know, we look at what he went through. The man had some conviction. Amen? Ephesians 4.22 says, You were taught with regards to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You know, Paul uses some very intense words here in Romans 7. He says, what a wretched man I am. You know, the word wretched, as you can see here on the screen, is a word of woe or tragic misfortune. It's the Greek word talaiiposporos. And it means to bear a callus, to be exhausted from hard, grueling labor, to be miserable or distressed. You know, what this word described was the condition of captives doomed to labor in the Roman minds. Paul was weary of his sin and frustrated and trapped. He cries out, who will deliver me? Do you ever feel that way at all? Are you trapped, frustrated? Are you crying out, who will deliver me? You know, there's an interesting picture in the statement... Who will rescue me from this body of death? Near Tarsus, where Paul was born, was an ancient tribe sentenced convicted murderers, where they sentenced convicted uh, murderers to a gruesome execution. The corpse of the person they were murdered to, or murdered, they were tied to. They were bound to that individual until they died. Whenever the killer moved or walked, the body was bound to him. The stench of decay, the flies, the maggots, the psychological trauma that they would be plagued with, or being infected because of all the stuff that was going on with this corpse, a lot of times led to their death. And ultimately, those individuals were buried with the person that they murdered. This is what Paul understood here when it comes to this burden of sin. Paul desired to be freed from the body of death or the body of sinfulness that shadowed him. And again, he wondered who would deliver him. And we see that in Romans 7, verse 25. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. You know, we look at this whole passage that we've been through. 
be kind of depressing without this final verse. Our deliverance comes from without, outside of us, from the Lord Jesus Christ. In our own power and strength, we're unable to live a victorious life, a victorious Christian life. Christ is the answer to our deliverance. Through Christ, singles can live pure lives. And I really want to commend the singles. It's so awesome to see men and women that are dedicated to that. Amen? Individuals with past addictions, whether it be alcohol or drugs, are delivered. Marriages can stay whole. And anything that we've been involved with in the past that is separated from God is cleansed and destroyed through the power of Christ's forgiveness. Christ is the answer to mankind's sin. Victory is in Christ. By yielding to Him, we are delivered. I want to close with a final story here. A story about an individual that spent some time in China. The guy's name is Watchman Nee. He tells the story of his stay in China with 20 other Christians. The bathing accommodations were inadequate in the home where they were lodging, so they went for a daily dip in the river. On one occasion, one of the men got a cramp in his leg and began to sink fast. Mr. Nee motioned to one of the other men who was an excellent swimmer about the drowning man. To his astonishment, however, the man did not move. He just stood there and he watched the drowning man. Mr. Nee was agitated, but the swimmer was calm and collected. Meanwhile, the voice of the drowning man grew fainter and more desperate. Mr. Nee hated the swimmer who just stood and watched on the shore when he could have jumped in the river and rescued this drowning man. As the drowning man went under for what looked like the last time, the swimmer was there in a moment, and both were soon safely on shore. After the rescue, Mr. Nee chewed out the swimmer, accusing him of loving his life too much and being selfish. The response of the swimmer revealed, however, he knew what he was doing. He told Watchman that if he had gone too soon, the drowning man would have put a death grip on him, and they would have both drowned in the river, and he was right. He told Mr. Nee that a drowning man cannot be saved until he is utterly exhausted and ceases to make the slightest effort to save himself. Such is the case with our salvation. When we stop trying to save ourselves, then the Lord can step in and save us when we yield to Him. Romans 7, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What's the key to a victorious life? It's not remembering that how Jesus lived, what He endured, and then He died and rose from the dead... The thing that's so incredibly important to us and the key to victorious life is remembering how Jesus lived, what he endured, how he died, and the fact that he rose from the dead for each and every one of us. Amen? Let's have Christ-like intent in 2011 and carry this on, this intent forward for the glory of God. Amen?